Our sermon is drawn this morning from the psalm we just sang, and to begin it, I have to point out a a mistranslation in what we just sang. Uh, In the first segment of the psalm, we sang that God is gracious to those who have childlike faith. Uh, That's true, obviously, and even the psalm that we sang does have that as part of its message. The psalmist is going to have a very basic, almost primal kind of faith. It's going to be a gift from God, and God is going to be kind to him. So uh, what we're saying is true, but that's not what the Hebrew actually says at that verse at that point. Uh, What it says at that point is, God preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. It is not a compliment when the scripture calls you simple. In our own use of language, when we talk about being simple, we may be using it positively. There's a movement that talks about simplifying your house and living a simple life. It means not being complicated. In the Hebrew Bible especially, Simple doesn't mean that. Simple refers to a kind of person, a kind of person who does not know spiritual truths and realities, but more than that, he's not just ignorant, he's ignorant. If you're from the South, you know the difference. If someone's ignorant, it's okay. If he's ignorant, you're saying something else. Well, the simple is ignorant. He doesn't know God, he doesn't know spiritual realities, but he knows he doesn't know, and he doesn't want to. There is a crossing of the arms, a saying, I don't want to get involved in this spiritual stuff. I know it's out there, you know, I kind of have an idea that God is out there, but I don't want it. I don't want to be affected by it. I don't want to be bothered by it. I don't know, and I don't want to know. I want to live a life separate from spiritual realities. So when the psalmist identifies himself as, I was simple and God preserved me, it was not, I was in a good place and God reached out to me. It was exactly the opposite. I was in a particularly bad place. I was willfully ignorant and God preserved the simple. It is not easy to be a simpleton. And it's made harder by the fact that if you are a simpleton, you believe that it is easy to be a simpleton. You think you have life by the tail specifically because you don't know spiritual things and you don't want to get involved in them. And when the book of Proverbs begins, we get introduced to the simpleton and the simpleton's relation to divine wisdom, and it's not a good relationship. Beginning at verse 20 in chapter 1 of Proverbs, we read this. Wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open squares. She cries out in the chief concourses, At the openings of the gates of the city, she speaks her words, How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? For scorners delight in their scorning, 
and fools hate knowledge. So wisdom is saying a simpleton is a scorner and a fool. Turn at my rebuke, surely I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refused, crossed arms, don't want it. Because I have called and you refused, I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded. Because you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes. When your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, they would have none of my counsel and despised my every rebuke. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies. For the turning away of the simple will slay them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. So to recap that, you have the simpleton refusing wisdom. Wisdom is... Everywhere he looks, God's wisdom is encoded into all reality, and the simpleton is just absolutely willfully turning it away, and wisdom says, you know, there's going to come a time when you really honestly needed me, and when that happens, you'll cry out for me, and I'll say no. You didn't look for me when you could have me, so when disaster comes, true disaster, when the world crashes in on you and you suddenly decide, you know, I really think wisdom would be really good to have at this moment. I'm going to stand back and I'm going to laugh at you. And you are going to be absolutely destroyed. God's wrath is going to pour down upon you like a flood. And I'm going to mock you as you drought. I mean, it's, it's a passage from the Spirit of God casting shade on simple people. When disaster comes, you can't have wisdom. It's too late. It won't be found. But if unable to have wisdom, does that mean that God cannot choose of his own proclivity to be gracious? The chance is, he may not, but God is gracious. What happens when you have a simpleton and the world crashes in and doesn't cry for wisdom because it's too late for that? But he cries out for God's grace when the cancer begins to eat at his body, when he loses his business, when his wife walks out, when uh, the sinful proclivities that he's addicted to finally bring their consequences, and he cries out to God in that moment when the world is crashing in like Wisdom talked about, will God be gracious if he cries out for it? The answer is maybe. In Psalm 116, that's kind of where we are. In the psalm, the psalmist identifies himself uh, as being outwardly a part of God's covenant. 
in verse 5, he uses a fairly telling statement. He says, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. The, the context suggests that the psalmist identified himself religiously with the true God, with the God of the temple, the God who appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, considered himself within that religion, but nevertheless he calls himself a simpleton. He's both. He is involved with religion. He probably knows the things of religion. He probably knows the sacrifices that you're supposed to give and win because it's part of life. But he really, at the beginning of the psalm, is a simpleton. He doesn't really want spiritual things. And the fact that he is outwardly religious doesn't change that. The truth is, the world is filled with simpletons. And a small percentage, but significant percentage of them, are seated in church this very minute on this Lord's Day. They don't know spiritual things. They don't want to hear spiritual things, really. But they're connected to religion, but they're very happy not to be bothered by it. Well, that's where our psalmist begins our psalm. But Proverbs 1, verse 24 through 28 has come true. In verse 3 of our psalm, he says, The pains of death surrounded me. Or it can also be translated, the cords of death. Uh, Picture how you would feel if someone grabbed you in a net and began to pull you towards themselves. That's how the psalmist feels about death. Uh, It's got a hold of him. There's a consequence for his simplicity. God is bringing his rebellious ignorance to roost, and the cords of death have laid hold of him, the pains of death, and uh, the pains of Sheol, the pains of the pit. He can see death coming because of who he is. It's laid hold on him. He found trouble and sorrow. So we're at that point that Wisdom talked about where, you know, when trouble comes, I'm going to laugh at you. Well, Wisdom's laughing. And the psalmist realizes that the jig is up. Uh, I'm going to be drawn away to death in my simpleness, in my rebellion, in my ignorance. And this simpleton in that moment of anguish and terror, he's called himself a simpleton, so he's, he's not a religiously converted person. But in that moment of terror and anguish, cries out to God, Lord, save me. Save my soul. Save everything about me. He cries out for the grace of God. He didn't cry out for wisdom. Way too late to learn any wisdom at this moment. He cries out rawly for grace. And God response. God answers this cry of faith, and you have to wonder where it came from. Because the psalmist is very clear, you know, I was rebellious to faith, but in this dark moment, I found I had faith. Was he raised by people of faith? Maybe. He calls himself the son of your handmaiden, later in the psalm, which seems to suggest when he thinks about his mother, he thinks about a faithful woman. So he may have been raised in the faith. It may also be the gift of God in this dark moment. 
God uses means, and uh, don't count out God's ability to break people. The, the whole, uh, you know, rumor of man's self-will is, is fairly illusionary. God has, for 6,000 years, been shattering people that he wants to bring to himself, and the psalmist is there. The psalmist is wickedly simple, but God brings the tidal wave over him, and in his trouble, in his distress, in all these things that human beings would say, this is the worst moment possible, it's where faith comes out of the psalmist and he cries to God for grace. Maybe it's, it's that catechetical training that he received, and his mother wondered year after year, why am I wasting my breath on this hard-hearted kid? Um, we take him to Sunday school, and he just laughs it off. Uh, you know, how can someone be as hard as this child? Well, God can break anybody. And that's what's happening here. God is breaking this simpleton, and he cries out in faith, and amazingly, God responds graciously. The truth is, God can reach the simple, and the simple are some of the most frustrating people. The simple are those people you talk to until you're blue in the face, and they're remaining willfully ignorant, and you ever talk to somebody like this? You ever been there? Uh, you know, you've, you've, you've shared with them and shared with them and shared with them, and the reason they don't get it is they don't want to. Well, it turns out God can break that kind of person. And so when the psalmist talks about what comes from his cry of faith, um, I love the Lord because he heard my voice and my supplication. So God hears him. In verse 6, I was brought low and he saved me. This, th- this terrible moment is actually the grace of God. There are some who would consider... Uh, You know, if I belong to the Lord, well, that's the end of troubles. The truth is, God sends troubles over his elect people all the time. He sends trouble over converted people. He sends trouble over people not yet converted. And God works by the darkness, the blackness, the hardness, the persecution. God is at work in that, in, in, in the sickness, the suffering, the disappointment, God is at work in that just as much as in anything else. And so the psalmist acknowledges, you saved me when I was brought low, and you saved me out of being a simpleton. In verse 8 through 9, he returns to the theme again and says, For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. It's true. Our God is gracious. Our God will respond to people who, uh, you know, let's face it. There's a number of people that we all know, and it's different from each of us, but you've got that category of person in your mind that is outside of the faith, and you're probably kind of okay with that because of who they are. You're, you're totally okay with them facing a Christless eternity. You shouldn't be, but you are. Well, it turns out that God is amazingly more gracious than we are. 
There is nobody that God's grace can't break and bring. He can break and bring a Manasseh, the, the darkest, bloodiest king in all the Old Testament. He can break and bring an Apostle Paul, who is definitely simple. He doesn't have spiritual knowledge, even though he's a well-trained Jew. Uh, he's totally rebellious to the knowledge of God and hates what God's doing in Jesus Christ, is murdering people who belong to Christ. God can break him. Knock him off his donkey, give him blindness, cause him to be led into the town. All of that's the hand of God's grace. That is God acting in kindness for his elect. And that's what the psalmist has experienced, and God has been gracious to him in this darkness. Um, The effects of this grace upon the simpleton is utterly amazing. He begins with the declaration in the psalm, I love the Lord. It's emphatic in the original. It is, I deeply, deeply love the Lord. He started off a member of First Judean Church. He started off religious, but he loved the Lord at all. But God was gracious to a hard-hearted man, and it is amazing how the grace of God will shatter the hard cement of a dead heart And out of that cement will come overflowing praise and love and worship. And really, this psalm is kind of about the psalmist telling you why he loves the Lord. His love is overwhelming. His love is powerful. His love is coming from deep within him because God has heard his prayer. The prayer of a simpleton, the prayer of a hard man. Uh, It has brought about dependence on God. In verse 2... The psalmist says, because he heard my voice, I will call upon him all the days of my life. I will seek aid from him. On first reading, the average reader might think, I wonder how God feels about that. Because uh, saying, you know, he's been really good to me, therefore I'm going to turn around and really depend upon him my whole life, the flesh kind of recoils at that. The flesh would say, why would I want this man seeking every good from me? Why would I suddenly want a dependent? That doesn't sound like much of a bargain at all. But that is the flesh talking. It turns out God desires people to literally depend upon him absolutely. And in fact, this dependence is the worship that God seeks. When John Calvin wrote a catechism from the church at Geneva, um, he starts off asking the question, uh, what is the true and right knowledge of God? It's actually question six. It's not exactly the beginning. It was very close. What is the true and right knowledge of God? And the answer is, When we know him in order that we may honor him. It's pretty standard. Uh, We we really know God, really, when we truly give God honor and glory. Okay, makes sense. How do we honor him aright is the next question. And the answer is, we put our reliance entirely on him. By serving him in obedience to his will. By calling upon him in all our need seeking salvation and every good thing in him. 
and acknowledging with heart and mouth that all our good proceeds from him. The great reformer there has defined honor of God in four big broad terms, and the next part of the catechism goes into those four. But if you you look at those four categories, three out of four of them can be paraphrased as I absolutely depend upon God. Uh, I don't depend upon self or other people. I totally, totally depend upon God. And depending on him is worship. It is showing him honor or right. Uh, The psalmist has discovered that, and that plays out all through the entire psalm. I will put my dependence on him. I will will trust him. I will be absolutely dependent on him. This is not codependency. This is an actual act of worship. Uh, The psalmist desires to serve God. In verse 12 through 14, we read... What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits towards me? I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord, now in the presence of all his people. The cup of salvation might be a reference to one of the various drink offerings, but it's a, if it is, it's a very... uh, odd way to refer to it. The picture more seems like a man with an empty cup holding up his cup to God and asking him to fill it. I will lift up the cup of salvation. The cup belongs to me because I'm a saved man. It's God's to fill it, and I will lift it up, and he will fill my cup. That's dependency. But there is also, at the end of this section, I will fulfill my vows to the Lord. I will make promises to God, and I will keep those promises. These are good works I'll walk in, which it turns out God predestined for me from the beginning of time, as we find out in other passages. But I will serve God by the promises I make to God. The simple isn't going to make that statement. The simple is willfully ignorant, and he's not going to go making a lot of vows to God, because that's the exact opposite of his nature. Uh, He wants to be ignorant of God, separate of God. He's not going to go in and promise God anything. But having experienced the divine grace of God in a very tangible way, now his heart has been totally turned, and he's going to refer to paying his vows to God twice, which is emphatic. Um, What the dead, rebellious sinner sees as a burden the grace-touched man sees as a privilege. And you see that coming out in the psalmist. The psalmist lays hold existentially embracing the covenant. At the beginning of his story, he's dead but religious. In verse 16, he cries out, O Lord, truly I am your servant. I wasn't truly your servant before. I was just religious. I was probably on the rolls of a church. I probably had been baptized. I might even be a deacon. Who knows? I wasn't truly your servant. But in 16, O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. The one who has been forgiven much loves much, Christ says. And the psalmist is there. He, he was that man that probably a lot of people 
kind of were okay with the fact he was probably going to damnation. But he has been loved much. He knows he's been loved much. The hand of God has temporally uh, delivered him. It's not just been spiritual. It's been God really answering his prayer. And now he cries out, I am your servant. I really am. You loosed my bonds. Um, One wonders if the psalmist is saying, because I was to be your servant, you loosed my bonds. I was your elect. Or is it, I'm now overwhelmed to be your servant and want to be because you loose my bonds? I think the answer is probably yes. The language could support both, and both is happening. The psalmist didn't care for God at the beginning of the psalm, but God cared for the psalmist, and God showed that care in a tangible way, and that changed the psalmist's heart. Uh, The psalmist now has a joy for being in the midst of the people of God. He will mention that in verse 14. He will mention that in verse 18. Uh, the, The revised New American Standard Bible actually translates it using the emphatic that is there. Uh, something to along the lines of, uh, it is so good to be in the midst of your people. It's, it's, it's wonderful. Before grace, simple people don't really like being here. It's not natural to them. Really, what's more natural to them is Proverbs chapter 18, verse 1. Now, the term simple isn't used here, but the simpleton tends to have this attitude A man who isolates himself and seeks his own desire, he rages against all wise judgment, which is what simpletons do. Uh, They hate knowledge, they hate wisdom, they hate the knowledge of the Lord. Well, the guy in Proverbs 18.1 rages against all wise judgment, and part of that is he wants to isolate himself. He doesn't want to be in the midst of the people of God, but grace changes that, just like it is a blessing to be able to serve God if your grace touched. It is a blessing to be around the people of God. We sing Psalm 16 quite often. It's one of my favorites, and I get to put the worship together, so it actually comes up a lot. But in Psalm 16, the psalmist begins by saying, "Uh, Lord, preserve me, for in you I put your trust. My soul has said to the Lord, I have no other good, no other possible good but you. You are my total good. And then the very next verse is, as for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones, the noble ones, in whom is all my delight. And on first reading of that, you wonder, well, if God's your whole good, how can you now be talking about the saints of God? Well, the truth is, God's a package deal. God gives you your inheritance, as that psalm says later, and he protects the inheritance. God gives you the saints. The saints are literally part of the family of God. And uh, when you love God, you love his children. And so the psalmist has been totally turned around. He, He was wrapped up in his own individuality in a wicked way. He he wanted not to know. But now that he's been touched by grace, he wants to be in the midst of the people of God. And twice in the psalm, he he almost giggly says it. I get to be here in the midst of the people of God because God has touched me with grace. Um, Now he's in the temple. 
And in fact, the last line of the psalm has the psalmist uh, stop speaking to God directly, and he actually talks to the temple. He says this. Um, turn the page here. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem. Doesn't that sound joyful? Doesn't that sound just like a heart that is happy? He has been brought to the temple of the God he didn't want to know, and now grace touched. He is absolutely joyful to be there, And the means of grace are a joy. He talks about bringing a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Uh, We jump very quickly to, well, that, that means thanksgiving from the heart, and it is. But he's in the temple, and he's thinking about those offerings that we've been reading about on Wednesday. Those bulls you bring to the temple and sacrifice. Uh, But he's filled with joy to be involved in the sacraments. These are means of grace to him now. God meets him in the sacrifice. It's not just an outward religious observance. It's not just ceremony. Now the Thanksgiving offering is literally Thanksgiving, and he is just joyful to be part of that. He is joyful to make vows to the Lord, which again is a very religious activity to do, uh, but God meets him there now. The simpleton is dead concrete. He doesn't want to know, but he doesn't know what he's missing. And the psalmist has received divine grace, and all these things are just now a joy to him. They they fill his heart with such joy that he has to sing. Um, One of the more interesting things about this psalm is he turns and looks at death and no longer sees it as negative. At the beginning of the psalm, he's a simple man, not a good thing. Death is going to be pretty meaningless. You don't know spiritual things. You don't want to know spiritual things. But when the cords of death get hold of you, when the anguish of Sheol lays hold on you, now you're panicking, now you're crying out to God because you're afraid, because you're going to die like a dog. You're going to die like a fly that gets caught on flypaper. Meaningless, empty, uh, you didn't mean anything before you died, and you don't mean anything now. And that sense of emptiness has just absolutely taken hold of you. But listen to what he says in verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And he identifies himself as a saint by the very next verses. Lord, truly, I'm your servant. He's building off what he said before. Um, He's not delivered from death. Uh, Before the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, one out of one people are going to die. You're going to die. And for the person who dies without knowing the Lord, it's pretty empty. It's pretty meaningless. It's not precious. You want to know one of, the, one of the darkest places you can be if you're a minister of the gospel? Uh, be asked to do the funeral of someone who has no faith in Christ. Uh, we get asked to do those all the time, and uh, 
what do you what do you say? I mean, he's in a better place. Ain't no way he's in a better place. His life had meaning. No, not really. It's as if he was never born. There's no real hope to give to people. You you preach the gospel of Christ, you preach the word of God, and you don't even mention Harry because there's nothing to say. But the psalmist has had death transformed for him. He knows that he is going to die, but now when that comes, it will be precious to God. A saint of his is coming home. This saint who he has touched with grace, he has converted, has turned hardness of heart to joy. When this man dies, heaven will welcome him. The the, the parapets of heaven will sing with joy because someone God has redeemed has come to be in the company of just men made perfect. In the, second chap- in the first chapter of Second Peter, Peter describes a man like that coming into heaven as the gates of heaven will be swung wide open for you. It won't be a narrow, constricted uh, thing. It will be heaven throws its doors open and you enter into the kingdom of God in its fullness. Well, the psalmist knows that. He knows it's going to be like that. And he now sees his coming death as precious, precious to God, and therefore literally precious. Perhaps of the various changes that we see in the psalmist, the most amazing. Um, It's not the only place you find it in the Psalms. I mentioned Psalm 16. Psalm 16 ends with that sort of joy too. In uh, verse 7 through 11 of that psalm, The psalmist says this, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my joy rejoices. My flesh also, my body, my flesh, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. No objective witness reading those words can come away from them thinking the psalmist doesn't have an idea of eternal life. I was assured in seminary by liberal professors that the concept of resurrection and eternal life and actually living beyond the grave, uh, that was a New Testament addition. Uh, You don't find it in the Old Testament. I guess they were betting on us not reading the Old Testament because, honestly, if you read the Old Testament, the promises of God that the death of his saints will be precious and because his Holy One won't see decay, you will not be left in the grave you will be shown the paths of life, and you will be with God and be in pleasure. Uh, Apparently, I I wasn't supposed to read that, but I have, and the psalmist is experiencing it. The fact that God has been gracious to him and delivered him briefly from death does mean he's totally delivered from death, because now it's not a fear. Death is precious. 
because he goes to be with the God who is gracious to him. That is a freedom from fear. And that is emphasized not only for the world to come, but also for this one. In verse 7, the psalmist says this. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Your soul is the completeness of your spirit and body together. Biblically, that's what the word soul means. If you're thinking about just your inner man, the term spirit is used for that. But the psalmist looks at himself and says, Return to your rest, O my soul. The Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Have you ever met someone who did escape something very traumatic, but they don't have any hope in God? What, what are they like? Well, usually that person is kind of scarred. Their experience of this horrendous thing leaves them frightened. They, they have brushed with death, they have brushed with evil, and now they jump at their every shadow. They, they fear more than before it happened. They got away, but it has left them trembling and afraid of what's coming. Uh, the psalmist is totally not like that. The psalmist has seen God's action in his life, and far from thinking, okay, this could happen again next week, it has led him to think, there is a God who watches over me. I won't be afraid even as I walk in the land of the living. God is there. God is present. God has acted. God has shown grace to a hardened man. Why should I be afraid? God's watching over. He who watches over you, O Israel, he will not slumber nor sleep. That's where the psalmist is. He'll die again. But he won't be afraid of it or anything that comes along with it. Because God is there. Now, the most interesting thing about this psalmist's testimony, because it has to be clear now, the psalmist really is giving a personal testimony, is through these events, the psalmist has come to learn something about the nature of God. And that something is verse 5. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. That needs meditating on. When the psalmist says God is gracious, it's what you would expect. It's God will forgive sinners. God is um, willing to uh, cover over sin and that sort of thing. But the psalmist, before he gets to, yes, our God is compassionate says also, our God is righteous. Which you would think would be the opposite of what the psalmist wants to say, and he would like to downplay it, because he was a simple man, a a rebellious sinner, and he says God is righteous, but he's also gracious. And when he puts those two things together, he says graciousness and righteousness, that leads to compassion, The original singers of the psalm must have found that very profound, but they must have asked themselves, how does that work? Because if God is truly righteous, why did this wicked, simple person receive the grace of God? If he's really righteous, how can he truly be gracious? 
how does graciousness and righteousness mix together to make compassion? Well, that's the very essence of our religion. When I teach uh, world religions at the college, I I bring up uh, a a quote by C.S. Lewis. He was once asked, what makes Christianity different than any of the world's religions? And he says, grace. Lewis is right. He's also wrong in a way. If you look at the world religions, all of them have some concept of grace because uh, all of them that acknowledge that there's a perfect being have to acknowledge mankind isn't perfect, and they have to ask the question, well, how can we relate to a perfect being at all? And some concept of grace comes up. But it is only in Christianity that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The Islamic God is not righteous. If he were righteous, he would literally damn everybody and there would be no Muslims he would let into heaven because uh, if he lets them into heaven without somehow dealing with his righteousness, he's not righteous. But in our faith, God is gracious. He wants to forgive sinners. He is also perfectly righteous And those two things meet in the cross of Christ. We're told in the Gospel of Luke that that, that the the, um, disciples on the way to Emmaus are told by Christ, now everything in the Psalms is about me, and this line can only be understood in our Lord Christ. The righteousness of God is seen in the cross. The graciousness of God is seen in the cross. God's perfect righteousness and, and, and graciousness commingle in the cross, and they mingle together to create the compassion that will save wicked sinners. And so in verse 5, the psalmist has come to learn who God really is. He is the God who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who can be just and the justifier of sinners. It is, in that way, a very messianic psalm. Because without Jesus Christ, no one can actually sing it.